Good morning. You can open our Bibles to John 12. I'll read 1 through 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner for, for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Jesus, or Judas Iscariot, one of, the, of his disciples, whom was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said, this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you, will, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Thank you, Joel. My wife said, it's really cold in here. Everybody's going to be awake for your sermon. And my heart sank. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, glorify your name today among the people of Great City Church. All things are of small value compared to you. And so we want to see you lifted up and glorified in this room, in our singing, in the affections of our heart, in our actions, when we go home, what we love, what we say, and what we look forward to. And so help me, Lord Jesus, to handle this text faithfully. Empower me with your spirit, open hearts to believe the gospel of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we returned to our series on the book of John. We have been coming back to this series on John periodically over the last few years, and we took a break and we went through the fruits of the Spirit. I'm going to back up so I can see all of you. Zechariah and 1 Peter. The, the title of the series is, is Believe, and I think it's really appropriately titled. Um, I didn't title it, so I'm not boasting. I'm, I'm assuming Pastor Jeremy entitled the sermon, Believe. Uh, but I think it's really appropriately titled. It, it's a verb, actually. It, it's an imperative verb, and it's a call or a command to you to believe. It, it's like this whole sermon series is saying, Grace City Church, believe in Jesus. Believe. You've, you've probably gathered then that that's really part of the reason for this sermon series. And the reason that I think it's appropriately titled is because it, it's really closely connected to John's 
purpose in writing. In his epilogue in John 20, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, have life in his name. Over and over again, in the Gospel of John, John presents Jesus to the reader, or really, Jesus presents himself to the people, and John recounts that, and then the people are faced with making a choice. Are you, are you going to believe? Are you going to believe? What's going to be your response to what Jesus did? What's, what's your response to what he's claimed about himself? It, it's almost as if Jesus presents himself to the world, to the people, and then he says, what say you about me? What say you about me? This comes up over and over in the book of John. And interestingly enough, John never uses the word faith or belief, the word pistis, in his gospel. He only ever uses the verb, belief, or believing. And so, for John, belief is an action. It's not merely something that's out there. It's, it's something that is manifested in your heart, and it spills over into your life. And so, John paints a picture of Jesus. For example, last week, Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And then the reader is faced with the question. Are you going to believe? How are you going to respond to what Jesus has done? How are you going to respond to what he has said? How are you going to respond that Jesus raises the dead? You, you can't walk away from an encounter like that and be apathetic. Even even saying, well, I'm not going to have an opinion. I'm going to abstain. You don't get to abstain. Abstaining is a decision. It's a response. Everybody has a response to Jesus. And so what is your response? And so just as John writes his gospel so that we might believe, he presents Jesus to us, and then says, are you going to believe? So this sermon series has the same purpose. You may say, well, I already believe. I prayed a prayer once back in Bible camp, and um, I said the thing about I'm a sinner, and Jesus is coming to my heart, and, and then I was saved, and so I believed, and now I'm done with all that. I'm, I'm already saved. I, I do believe. And, and I'd be thankful for that. But, but that's not the type of belief that John has in mind. And so not only are we faced with the question of, are you going to believe? But we're faced with the question, what does belief look like? What does belief look like? And this, this call to believe is for both unbelievers, people who aren't following Jesus, but it's a call to believe those who are following Jesus, exhorted to greater and greater trusting and hoping and affection in Jesus. This, this whole letter is a call to believe in Jesus in the right ways. And that's not merely intellectual assent. It's a moment-by-moment devotional hoping in Christ. So we, we might ask, well, what does that mean and how does it come out? What, what does it mean to believe in Jesus and John? And, and there's, 
there's really different types of belief, and I think it's important that we, re- we remember this. Not all belief is truly belief. Not all belief is, is really believing. Let me, let me provide you with an example, okay? Kids, if you go to a restaurant and you see that they have crab on the menu, I'm going to, a spoiler, if it's spelt with a K, K-R-A-B, that's not crab. That's imitation crab. They make it look like crab. It, it kind of tastes like crab. They make it colored like crab. It's imitation crab. It's, it's fake crab. It's made to look like crab, but it, it's really not. I actually looked it up. It's probably some sort of mashup fish called Pollock, and then they shape it and color it. So maybe now you who did like imitation crab are going to be like, no, I'm going to pass on that now. It seems like crab, but it isn't. Not all that claims to be belief actually is belief. It seems like belief, it looks like belief, but it's just not belief. And so not only is Jesus' audience faced with the question of, of what are you going to do with Jesus? after he says and does these things. But they're faced with the reality of what believing is. And sometimes people respond in very different ways in John's Gospel. These types of contrasts and questions, they they come up all the time. And sometimes we're very surprised by the answers and surprised by what happens. Think with me, for example, of of Nicodemus in chapter 3 and then the Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4. In a sense, these two people are contrasted. Nicodemus, right? He's educated, esteemed, regarded as a teacher of Israel, undoubtedly wealthy, honored, according to the law, blameless, learned. This guy's got it together. He's the picture of who we would expect to believe it. And then in chapter 4, Jesus presents himself to a Samaritan woman. Uh, an outcast, and actually an outcast, I mean among outcasts, wrong people group, not educated, female, can't even travel to the well at the same time as the other women, sexually immoral, outcast, uncertain, beaten, broken, unlearned, abused, abandoned. And Jesus presents himself to both people. What are they going to believe about Jesus? In the case of the the Samaritan woman, she goes away joyfully. Nicodemus, at the very least, seems uncertain, at least at that instant. And so Jesus presents himself to both, and each is faced with a decision. Grace City Church, you are faced with a decision. What will you do with Jesus? How will you respond to one who raises the dead. And what will your response look like? Will it be true belief or will it be something more like imitation crab meat? Well, with that in mind, let's go to our text in John 12. Look with me at verse number one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. 
You, you may remember these people from last week. Lazarus, Mary, we'll come onto the scene in a moment, Jesus here, Martha. All of these people are, are mentioned in last week's text in chapter 11, in the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so this is really a continuation of that scene. So whatever thoughts you have in your mind from chapter 11, hold those in your mind now because these are a, this is a continuation. Resurrection is on our brains, isn't it? Last week, Resurrection Sunday, we heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. Something tells me that Mary and Martha kind of had resurrection on the brain too. You know who really did? Probably Lazarus. Really thinking about resurrection. And so resurrection themes should be on our mind as we come into this this text. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead, and, and then as a result of that, they give him a feast or a banquet. I get that from the words where it says, they gave a dinner for him there. They gave a dinner for Jesus there. If somebody gives a dinner for you, you probably think, well, I'm very important. I'm the special guest. That's what it means when somebody gives a dinner for you. And so they gave Jesus a special dinner. Now, now typically, it would have been normal to sit at tables in Jewish meals. But, but here it says they were reclining at the table. And so it's a particularly noteful occasion here. This is like a banquet or a celebration. It's tipping us off to the fact that, that there's more going on here than just a normal meal. And of course, of course, Lazarus is mentioned as the one whom Jesus has raised from the dead. And so all of this seems to imply that this is a, a special meal, a remembering meal, a celebrating meal, an overjoyed meal. You can imagine how emotional this event would be for these people. You think our, our Easter Sundays are special. A brother raised from the dead. Shallow is probably too, or excuse me, joyful is probably too shallow of a word. Last week when we did church, Resurrection Sunday, we came together, we celebrated, and then what happened? You, you probably went home, you gathered with your friends and family, and what did you do? You do what everybody does when they're happy. They eat. That's what is happening here. They're, they're joyous, they're happy, they're celebrating. They're, they're enjoying looking at the faces of the people who also experience that with them. Isn't that true? When you're in a, a group of people and something funny happens, or something exciting happens, or you're joyous, what do you do? You look and you see the joy on other people's faces. It's almost as if you're seeing their joy makes your joy complete. I have to imagine that's part of what this scene probably looked like. Over and over again, they looked at one another, and there's smiles. And then they, and then they looked at Lazarus, and they said, I, I just can't believe it. He's alive. He's alive. I, I, it, he was just dead. And he looks so good for a four-day dead man. He's alive. But, but then, their eyes would come off of Lazarus. And they would land on Jesus. He's alive. But he did it. He did it. Jesus 
raises the dead. He speaks to the Father, and the Father listens to him. Can you imagine the joy? Imagine your joy if it was your father or your mother or your sister or brother whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I'm sure that we would barely be able to contain ourselves. Overwhelmed by the miracle of resurrection. And more than that, overwhelmed by him who has power over death. Your affections for Jesus would be almost uncontainable. I have to imagine that your hearts would be bursting with excitement and astonishment and joy. And that would be so right, because our affections should be on what is greatest. We should be most fond of what is most fond. We should most esteem what is most esteemable. And so Mary's attention and affection is on Jesus, exactly where it's supposed to be. And so it says in verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary pours out her devotion upon Jesus. It's almost as if she's bottled up her joy and gratitude and affection for Jesus into a bottle, and then she lavishes it on him. A year's wages poured out on Jesus with no feelings whatsoever of the loss of that. It's pure gain for her. It's pure gain. It's a lavish, it's a lavish act. Make no mistake about it. Imagine an entire year's wages for you poured out as a drink offering on the Lord. And more than that, even poured out on his It would have been customary under certain special occasions, really noteworthy occasions, for a little oil to be put on somebody's head as a way of marking them out or anointing them. If you come into another person's home, they may provide you with water that you can wash your feet. In in some instances, a very, very lowly servant may wash your feet. A lowly servant, because nobody likes to touch anybody else's feet, do we? Nobody likes that. But, but Mary, but Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the finest of oils, the finest of oils, and then washes them with her hair. Jesus' feet would have been covered in dirt and dust from the road. Our feet aren't exactly considered high, honorable parts of our body, are they? We don't give a lot of attention to them. They're they're not noteworthy. And yet Mary touches and washes Jesus' feet, his smelly, sweaty, dusty man feet. And she does it with her hair. Ladies, if you think about your hair, you probably have some affection towards it. You probably work hard to make it look nice. It's an aspect of your beauty. Paul calls a woman's hair her glory in 1 Corinthians. It's a lot of attention. We probably don't love the idea of washing a man's feet with your hair. And yet, and yet 
taking down her hair would have been almost scandalous in front of other men. It, it would have been risque even. Not, not in a sexually immoral way, but in a wildly intimate way. And so in Mary's great love for Jesus, she risks embarrassment and humiliation. She brings herself low. Not, not in shame, but rather in a devoted affection that's eager to be at the feet of someone who is lovely. What other response would there be to the Son of God who raises the dead than this type of affectionate devotion that we see in Mary? Well, as John often does, we see another response, a different response. Look at verse 4 with me. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This, this word but here may be one of the most important words in the text because it draws a contrast, again, like John often does, between different people's responses to Jesus. In one instance, we see the, the affectionate, devoted, lowly faith of Mary. And on the other hand, we see Judas's response. Whereas Mary lavished wealth upon Jesus, Judas objects. And on the face of it, his, objective, his objection seems normal. It even seems good. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And on the face of it, it just appears that Judas has got a deep concern for the poor. This, this perfume would have supplied a family's needs for a whole year almost. It was extravagant. It, it maybe bordered on the, on, on the excessive. I, I can almost hear my voice here like, well, how about we use a few drops on Jesus and then we'll just take the, us, the rest and we'll sell that. Jesus just have none of that. He'll have none of that. He wants radical, affectionate devotion. And in a bit, we're going to see why that's so appropriate. He says, leave her alone. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. But there's really more to Judas' statement, isn't there? John helps us see it, see it. He says, he said this about the poor, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas's statement about what he believed to be a better use of the money was just simply a pretense. It, it, it was a cover-up. Judas's unrighteousness was wrapped up in the appearance of righteousness. He, he masked his thievery and his deceit in the clothing of righteousness. And so not only is Judas a thief, but we see that Judas is also a liar. Sin begets sin. Greed produces lies. Not only is Judas a thief, but he masks it. He masks that thieving with righteousness. If, if, if Jesus said, Judas, yeah, you're right, take that money and, and, and sell it, or the, the perfume and sell it and give it to the poor, Judas would have been a thief not only from Jesus, but from the poor. Sin begets sin. Greed begets more sin. Kids, okay, I'm sure that this may have happened to some of you on some occasion, but not often. Your parents say, don't do that. And then you go do it. And then they say, did you do it? 
and you say, no. Disobedience breeds deceit. Sin breeds more sin. Greed produces more sin. Paul drives at that reality when he says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. If you think about a root, what what does a root do? Things spring up out of that root. They grow. The love of money is is a root that grows into other sins. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And so we see that, that Judas is a thief. We see that Judas is a liar. But I think more than anything, Judas is covetous. Covetous. He's covetous. Well, what does it mean to covet? What is covetousness? In Exodus 20, God gives to Moses the Ten Commandments, and he instructs them to write them on tablets of stone. And the very last one, the very last instruction on these stone tablets says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that else is your neighbor's. Covetousness is, is an inordinate desire for something that doesn't belong to you. It's an inappropriate desire that says, I want that. I want that. It's desiring something that you have no right to. And so, of course, it leads leads to theft and lying. But listen, covetousness is more than that. It's more than that. It's not merely the desiring of something that doesn't belong to you. It's, It's more. And it's deadly serious. Covetousness is no small thing. Let me explain why. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul calls covetousness idolatry. And look at what he says of the person who commits coveting. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ and God. To covet is to commit idolatry. To be covetous is to be an idolater. That's, That's what Paul points us here. Well, why is it? How can Paul take one sin? He says, this is the sin of covetousness, but actually, you know what that is? That's idolatry. Okay, how can he do that? Take a, one sin and make it a different sin. It's not a different sin. Okay, and let me, let me explain to you why. Let's go again to the Ten Commandments. This time, the commandment against idolatry, and we'll see more. He says in Exodus 24 and 5, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Don't worship idols. 
like money. Because the Lord, your God, is a jealous God. In idolatry, that which is God's gets directed elsewhere. God makes a claim to it, and it gets directed elsewhere. Hence, God's jealousy is what is appealed to as the prohibition against it. God makes a big announcement. He says, that's mine. I'm a jealous God. What you've directed elsewhere belongs to me. So coveting is a sin of idolatry because it elevates the thing coveted over God and directs what is God's to other things. It says to that which is desired. Thing desired? I trust you more than God. That's idolatry. Thing desired, I love you more than God. That's idolatry. And so Paul can say coveting is that. So covetousness sets up false gods for us. And then it draws us away from God to other things. Like the God of money, the God of sex, the God of the Amazon Prime order, which I love. The God of the new house, new car, next promotion or whatever other things we are hoping in besides Jesus. Judas coveted the money that could have been gained through the sale of the perfume. And in particular, he coveted it over Jesus. There's no innocent victim in coveting. It's not a victimless sin. In fact, all sins are against God, but this one lands in a way that says, I have affections for this object or this thing over my affections for you, Lord. Isn't isn't that what idolatry is? It's bowing down before an idol, paying homage, burning incense, sacrificing, in the hopes that you're going to get from that false god what you can only get from God. It's saying, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back. I'm going to do this, and you do this for me. It's, It's looking for security, for hope, for trust, belief in the God of your making. Idolatry is trusting something other than God. It's a matter of belief and trust and hope and refuge. I raise the dead, Judas. Will you believe in me or will you believe in the money bag? Psalm 52 says, See the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. What we take refuge in is our God. This this may have well been written about Judas. Judas' refuge was the money bag. Do, Do you see the insanity of sin in this? Sin is insanity. Do you see it? 
Okay? Insanity says, I get more security from a money bag than from him who made all things, controls all things, raises the dead, saves, rescues, empowers, loves, invites, forgives. Ladies, in I think a couple weeks here, you're going to have an opportunity to drive a stake into the heart of envy and covetousness. I think in a June 5th, I think, is the first meeting for the gals to study this book together with Michelle Holder. I, I'd encourage you to participate in that and mortify this sin. It, it's heartbreaking to think that at this point in Jesus' ministry, Judas has probably heard the parable of the sower and the four soils several times. We shouldn't think that Jesus only preached what's in the gospel one time, right? He's, he's an itinerant preacher. He moved around. So, so Judas probably could have even recalled from memory the parable of the sower and the four soils. That, that parable tells the story really of four different types of people represented by these four soils. And, and, and the word of God represented by the seed is scattered across these four soils. And there's a response from each of these soils. And it, it's really telling us and showing us how different people might respond to the word of the gospel. And, and in the first soil, the, the, the seed lands upon uh, the path. And as a result of that, it just never takes root. That's the person who maybe is here today, you hear the gospel, and, it, and you just never believe. You go home, and, and you're unaffected by the word of God. The, the second soil, or the second seed, or the soil, gets cast upon rocky ground. And, and that seed springs up quickly. They receive the word, and for a moment, they believe. But, but soon, the hardships of life, tribulation, suffering, choke it out and it falls away, and it doesn't believe anymore. Think about 1 Peter, parenthesis here. 1 Peter, you think, you think the book of 1 Peter and the emphasis on suffering is important? We don't want you to be second soilers. And then there's the third soil. The seed is cast on the ground, and it falls among thorns. And it's pops up, and it seems to believe for a moment, and then it dies. Belief dies. And Jesus says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. The deceitfulness of riches. Money makes promises to you. It can't keep. And it's not isolated to just the rich. The poor have cares of this world. The poor believe the lies and the deceitfulness of riches. If you're rich and you've acquired the object of your affections, or you're poor and you haven't acquired the objects of your affections, the problem isn't whether or not you've obtained them. The problem is the object of your affections. Money promised something to Judas it could never supply 
And the only person who could supply what Judas needed was standing right in front of him. That stands in stark, stark contrast to Mary. I imagine Mary gave no thought of the value of the perfume because she felt very acutely the value of Jesus. Judas, otherwise, felt very little of the value of Jesus, and so the money was very valuable. They're very different responses. But they have one significant thing in common, both Mary and Judas. They both saw a dead man raised to life. They were both presented with Jesus. What say you, Judas? What say you, Mary? What say you, Grace City Church? Will you believe in Jesus? You believe in something. Will you believe in Jesus? You might wear cotton. You might wear silk. You might drink whiskey. You might drink milk. You might eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. You may be sleeping on the floor. You may be sleeping in a king-sized bed. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's Bob Dylan. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, don't be deceived into thinking you're not a worshiper. Don't be deceived in thinking you are a religious. Everyone has a God. Every person is committed to something. Judas is not an unbeliever. His faith was in the money bag. This is a difference of the object of your faith. For Mary, it was quite different. In the end, we all place our hopes in something. And so John presents Jesus to you. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Seek your refuge in Jesus. Not other things. That's idolatry. Only one thing endured the cross for you. Laid his life down for the forgiveness of the sins of all of those who would trust in him. Reconciling you to the Father. Bringing you to God. Making you white as snow. Forgiving all of your sins, past, present, and future. Empowering you with his Holy Spirit purifying your affections, empowering you to serve. Only one person was resurrected from the dead and is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Only one person, only one person is recreating the heavens and the earth. An earth and the heavens where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more sin. 
And so Jesus says, believe in me, come to me. And he makes promises, like God will supply every need of yours. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And he exhorts you, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Not because what you have is enough. Be satisfied with what you got. He grounds his promise. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God will be yours for an eternity and can supply so much more than a small purse. So come to him. Come to Jesus. Don't wait. He's valuable. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Mary. Thank you for the devotion that we see in her, her affectionate, passionate, humble devotion. Thank you for the example she is to us of one who cherishes you above wealth. May there be not a single Judas in this room. May every single person here be like that fourth soil that hears the gospel, believes, and produces fruit. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come over these people? Would you come over me? Would you cause us to trust in Jesus? We ask this in his beautiful name and for his glory. Amen.